0: But we can begin, I'm going to start with prayer and then we'll move into Zephaniah. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your your word. And we're grateful for the opportunity to, to gather around it together, to listen for your voice among us, to come to your table this morning, to receive this gift, the bread of heaven, the blood of Christ that's been poured out for us God we we pray that as we come uh, and we partake of these things as we come to your word Lord that you would uh, make us receptive we pray that you would have the whole of our attention Lord we're distracted people we are busy people but we pray in this day we would be able to rest in your word we'd be able to hear your voice uh, and that we would be changed in the hearing uh, of your word as we open what is uh, an unfamiliar book for most people, Lord, we pray that you would still speak the familiar message of your gospel in surprising ways, God. We pray your kingdom would be made visible. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, I, I couldn't help but think about it this week. I, it's really pretty fitting that we're in Zephaniah for Halloween because Zephaniah, honestly, is, is pretty frightening. Like, it's, uh, it's kind of like a, a scary thing. And you could say that about all of the, these prophets uh, when they talk about the day of the Lord. But Zephaniah has like a unique way of doing things. The thing about it is, though, is most of us aren't even familiar with Zephaniah. Uh, we don't really remember Zephaniah. There's not a lot about him uh, to remember. Uh, he, he writes a very short book uh, in this obscure section uh, of the Old Testament. And honestly, his name is just a little too close to Zechariah's. It's like, am I really expected to remember both Zephaniah and Zechariah? I mean, it's just too much, right? That's generally how people are. Zechariah is the more memorable name. It's the more familiar to us, and so we forget it. Zephaniah is like, uh, it's like we're picking a basketball team. Zephaniah is the kid that's going to get picked last. Nobody knows anything about him, right? So nobody's going to pick him, right? It's going to be me, and then it's going to be Zephaniah, maybe, whatever. So Zephaniah, though, is, is really important. Because the way he describes the day of the Lord is pretty kind of eye-opening. It's unique, what he's describing. It's the stuff of nightmares, obviously, because we're already familiar with that so far. But but just listen to the way it starts. If you've got your Bibles, open to Zephaniah, right after Habakkuk, where we were last week. We're going to read verse 1 of chapter 1. We'll go through verse 4, I guess. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, son of Amon, king of Judah. I will sweep everything away from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. When I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. You get an idea of it, right? You, you, you see what I mean when I say it. it's It's pretty scary stuff that he's talking about. Like, if you read much further in in Zephaniah, you kind of realize Zephaniah could be the theme of your haunted house this year. Like, he's describing, like, an extinction-level event, right? There's your title, right? You got lots of, like, biohazard stickers and and strobe lights and stuff. Like, this, this works. What Zephaniah is describing is terrifying. It's the end, right? Everything good that God did in the beginning is about to be undone, he says. He's using all this language that's familiar from Genesis 1. He's saying it's all going to be happening in this slow motion reversal. God is about to undo everything good he ever did in his good world, right? He'll sweep away everything, man and beast, in the air, in the sea. It's all going away. And it sounds pretty intimidating. And obviously the question I think we ask in these moments when we read such harsh words is like how exactly did we get here why so harsh Zephaniah what's the deal we've been asking that question for weeks but remember we've been in this series now nine weeks this is the ninth of these prophets out of twelve right and that is because Zephaniah is one of the the later prophets we find Zephaniah further in the book of the 12, because he is one of the later prophets chronologically. He found himself living on the cusp of Judah's downfall, right? So the thing we've been reading about all these weeks, all these other prophets have been warning about it over and over again, and Zephaniah is one of the people who comes along later who's watching it all crumble. He's speaking the same message, and nonetheless, in spite of all of these warnings, the people never really change. They're the same. It's the same old patterns. Even on the rare occasions that they do repent, the change doesn't last. It doesn't really make any difference in any real sense, right? And Zephaniah here finds himself in the middle of all this rebellion, all this idolatry, all this brokenness. As a part of a, a long line of reformers. You caught that in, in, in verse 1, right? We're told that he came from the family of Hezekiah. If you've ever read the Old Testament, yes, he's talking about that Hezekiah. Hezekiah is one of the greatest, the most virtuous kings that Judah ever knew, right? He's one of the ones that you you remember as as being good. Because there are plenty of bad kings. Hezekiah is, is kind of this diamond in the rough, right? He had been a reformer. He had been one of those kings that stepped in and made a change. And idolatry kind of came to an end under his reign. But after his death, his son Manasseh abandoned all of that reform and led the people right back into idolatry. It's this terrible story. In terms of the history of Judah, it never gets darker than Manasseh. Manasseh's the guy who's so famous for sacrificing his own children. It's a practice that's especially detestable in God's eyes, right? It's a thing that was familiar in Canaan, but it was not okay for God's people. Manasseh led the country in this very dark direction. But that all changed during the reign of Josiah, just a short time after. We talked a little bit about Josiah. You might remember Jonathan talked about him last week. He was the boy king. He comes to the throne at the age of eight. His father reigned for two years um, prior to, to being killed. And Manasseh, excuse me, Josiah, comes to the throne at only eight years old, Right? But eventually, he leads this incredible reform in Judah later in his life. Zephaniah tells us it was during Josiah's reign, during this time of reform and change. That's when he was speaking. And that's that's interesting because if you think about it for just a minute, That means like Habakkuk that we're talking about last week, or or Zephaniah, these words that they're speaking, they might have actually been a catalyst in the life of Josiah. Because remember, he leads a reform later in his life. He was eight when he came to the throne. He was 26 when he started changing things. When the book of the law was found, Josiah knew what to do. Nobody else knew what to do. It's as if Josiah had been listening for years to the words of people like Zephaniah, and it had been making a difference. Another cool thing about Zephaniah, I was talking with April about it last night, Zephaniah's father was cushy. It's interesting, like, we just kind of read past that, but Cush, if you remember, is a place in in Africa, modern-day Ethiopia. He's like the only prophet we know of that is potentially a black man. It's really pretty cool. Like, he's an African prophet. He comes from this African family. We don't know for sure what exactly that means. That word can mean other things. But other times in Scripture when you see that word, Cushy, it's describing a Cushite, someone from Cush. Like, so this is an amazing thing. Here is this African prophet speaking into the life of the people of God. He has become an Israelite, and he is speaking into the life of the people of God and bringing about change. It's amazing. Zephaniah had been proclaiming judgment for a long time. And though it made a difference in Josiah's life, it had mostly fallen on deaf ears in Judah. Even when Josiah would institute change, the sense that we get is that it, it didn't really take root throughout the whole nation. It was a thing that was happening at the top, but not so much all the way down to the bottom. And so it's, it's no wonder the words he was speaking were so harsh But Zephaniah isn't just a one-dimensional prophet. That's the thing. None of these these 12 minor prophets are. They have more to say than, than just judgment. The book begins with judgment. But if you read all of Zephaniah, you realize it ends in joy. It begins with judgment and it ends in joy. There's this movement toward joy. And the source of this joy that Zephaniah is pointing us toward is God's nearness to his people. There's this hope of God's nearness to his people once more. Though they have grown distant from him, God is is going to draw near to them. But Zephaniah's message is this. There is no way to get to that joy other than through judgment. It is only through this painful experience that God is going to be able to bring them to the joy he had always intended for them because they have created this tremendous problem, this disaster God intends to bring them to joy, but it is through judgment. And Zephaniah is is kind of highlighting all of that. So he begins with judgment. One of the things you may have noticed, though, in this whole book of the 12 is that judgment doesn't, doesn't just mean God's about to judge the world or the nations for all the terrible things they've done. God's people are not excluded. And in fact, judgment begins most often with God's people. So that's how Zephaniah starts it. God judging Judah, his own people. In chapter 2, he moves toward the nations. He starts talking about the ways in which God is going to judge the world, all these other nations that are just as guilty and more guilty in so many other ways, right? And then when you get to the end, he comes right back to Jerusalem. His crown, his glory, Zion. He speaks these words of judgment over them. And Chapter 3 is where we're going to spend most of our time today. It's kind of like a, a microcosm of the whole book. The whole book is doing this thing, this movement from judgment to joy. And chapter 3 does that. It begins with the judgment of Jerusalem and moves us toward that joy. So let's read that. Uh, If you've got your Bibles, you can look at uh, chapter 3, verse 1. This is Zephaniah speaking to Jerusalem. Woe to the city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her rulers are evening wolves who leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are unprincipled. They are treacherous people. Her priests profane the sanctuary and do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no wrong. Morning by morning, he dispenses his justice. And every new day, he does not fail. Yet the unrighteous know no shame. So, again, how did we get here? We've already talked about it so much in the last eight weeks. We've seen it in our our series so far. One of the big problems in in Judah is that it's, it's the leader's These officials, judges, magistrates, people in positions of power, kings like Manasseh, for example, who lead the people in this direction. But it's not just people in positions of power in terms of government. It's spiritual authority figures, prophets who speak lies, priests who profane the law and the sanctuary, he says. Even they are rebellious. Even they oppress people in Judah. It's this very dark realization, and we've seen it. Judah has been led to this place. They didn't land here by mistake. They've been led here. But something that's interesting about Zephaniah, he kind of wants to highlight that at the heart of all of this, the real problem is that they are a people who cannot be corrected. They cannot be told they are wrong. They don't know how to accept wisdom. They don't know how to expect Or accept any sort of prophetic word that might be spoken to them? They can't. They cannot be corrected. He says, Jerusalem, she obeys no one. She cannot obey anyone. Seemingly, Judah is always right. God's people are always right. They can never be told they are wrong. And as a result, every time someone tries to warn them of anything, they ignore it. And they grow more and more distant from the Lord. That's the sense that you get. They're growing more and more distant from Yahweh. And eventually they have no desire at all to seek him. They don't seek him. They don't desire to be near to him. They are a people who are far from Yahweh, and yet they're supposed to be his people. There's a problem, right? And Zephaniah is highlighting it. And I think that's helpful because as we read through the Minor Prophets, I think there's this thing that happens for most of us. It's hard for us to even begin to relate. This feels very foreign from us, especially when we start talking about literal idolatry. Someone bowing down to a, an object made of, of stone or, or wood or, or metal, right? Something constructed by their own hands, a representation of a god that they're worshiping. Now that's foreign for us. When we talk about idolatry in our culture, in the church. Yes, we are guilty of idolatry in so many different ways. We fabricate our own idols. We worship things all the time in the subtlest of ways. But that is is categorically a bit different than the idolatry of, of Judah or the nations around them. We're not familiar with that. And so in some sense, we kind of insulate ourselves from what the prophets say all the time. It feels like it was written for them, and we're just kind of reading and learning from it. It's not really written for us. We're insulated from the whole thing. And yet Zephaniah, he does something helpful here. When we start talking about corruption, like that, that hits closer to home. That makes sense. When we start talking about the, the failure of leadership, that makes sense. Like we see that happening. We see that happening in our culture all the time. That is true in any age of the church. For centuries, that has always been true. We've always been able to relate to that. We see that happening. I was thinking about it this week. Like, what we've seen transpire on the political level in our country in recent years is is outrageous. And the ways in which church people have have just kind of felt like they had to divide along the same lines, the way in which, like, conspiracy theories went from being a part of, like, the fringes of our society to being a a centerpiece. In in our political conversations, it's like, how, how does that happen? How do we get there? How are we talking about policy and law with conspiracy theories being at the center of why we're deciding this? How does that happen? How can we erode the very notion of truth because it appeals to a base? Like, that's a dangerous thing, right? We see leadership fail us all the time. We see those sorts of things play out over and over again. Maybe it is real, right? Maybe reality is, is all this, this, this whole fantasy. It's this thing that keeps being toyed around with. Or we, we listen to leaders use very sanitized language, very clean-sounding language to talk about really barbaric things, whether that's war, whether it's about immigration. Like, go down the line. like We use really sanitized language to talk about these things. We preach the language of rights, and freedoms, and yet we act as if those rights and freedoms only apply to people of a certain category, certain socioeconomic status, certain ethnicity, certain skin color. We imagine that these rights that we talk about so often only apply to, I don't know, adults and not unborn children. We have this way of sanitizing our language, and we make it sound really nice, but people are leading us down a really dark path sometimes. We're familiar with that. Like, that hits close to home. We know it. And that's what Zephaniah is getting at here. Their leadership has failed them over and over again. The same thing is true when like we hear about Judah not being able to be corrected. They're incorrigible. They cannot be spoken to in any sort of real way. They won't respond. They don't obey. They don't trust the Lord. That sounds familiar to our cultural moment. Like we're living through something like that where people don't know how to be corrected. No one can tell you you're wrong. That's what we're living through. It's an interesting thing. Like we're very sensitive to that stuff. Like our postmodern philosophical moorings, which have shaped us and defined us in ways we don't even fully realize, they've led us into this this individualized notion of truth and a very experiential notion of truth. What I mean is we tend to doubt anything that we ourselves have not experienced. You can tell me it's true. You have observed it. You have verified it. But if I've not experienced it, I'm not sure I can trust it. This is the the situation we find ourselves in. All the more so if those who are like me, who I thereby trust, have not experienced it either, it calls it into question all the more. If neither I nor those who are like me have experienced this thing or can verify that thing, it must not be true. And I have to doubt it. That's problematic, right? Because at some point, that means when I'm wrong, blatantly, obviously wrong, I can't be corrected. And I need to be. I need to be able to to hear the truth and be changed by it. But at some point, this individualized, experiential worldview means I I can't be corrected when I need it. And don't think for a minute that doesn't affect our spirituality. Don't think for a minute that does not affect the way I relate to God himself. When the time comes when I need someone to speak the truth to me, I just categorize it as, as their experience and not mine. That's something that could be true for you, but it is not true for me. All right, this is, is where we live over and over again. I cannot be corrected. And at that point, the problem is I have become the only authority figure in my life. I am supposed to be the only authority figure in my life at that point. This is a, a problem. Over and over again, we come to this place. Because even when this small group of people that I do trust, this small group of people who are all, by the way, exactly like me, even when that small group of people who should decide to, to call into question something I, I, I'm doing, it's like, Well, uh, maybe I'm not as much a part of that group as I once thought I was. And chances are those people aren't ever going to say that because they're all exactly like me. There's not much of a chance of me being corrected by those who are exactly like me because we've all made the same decision. It's a problem. And it's funny how we arrive at all these conclusions too, how we justify it. Um, I've noticed that the words of Jesus are something we all want to co-opt for our particular side. Um, Especially Jesus' words on judgmentalism. Like Jesus is, is, is speaking to a, an incredibly judgmental religious society uh, and, and he's trying to, to chip away at it, right? And he says things like, judge not. Be careful how you judge, he says, for with the measure you use it will be measured to you, right? Jesus is saying how you judge is the way you're going to end up being judged. Be really careful how you do this. You're not very good judges, Jesus is saying, Right? It's a rejection of judgmentalism. But we take it as a rejection of any sort of moral discernment whatsoever. You cannot name what is good or right or true. No, no. You're supposed to decide that on your own and then keep it to yourself. Don't say that out loud. You can't. That would be judgmental. That's not what Jesus says. But that's what we do. We, we twist it and we kind of co-opt it. And, and we, eventually along with our society... Take it as, as a rejection of all of these things completely. A, a society that, that confirms this. I am the only authority figure in my life. You cannot tell me otherwise. You cannot correct me. And it's all in the, in the name of tolerance, whatever kind of language. It's all in the name of kindness. But it's like, it's like an impotent form of kindness. How is it kind for me to know the truth and not tell you? How is it kind for me to have decided that that I think the way I've been living is completely wrong and not tell you what I've been doing is completely wrong and what you're doing is completely wrong and out of touch? And the repercussions of this mindset were felt far and wide in Judah. Like it affected them at a deep level. No one could tell them they were wrong. Why is it it wrong for me to treat Yahweh as just one of a a large number of gods and worship them all? Why would that be wrong? I'm still worshiping Yahweh. They cannot be corrected. They don't see anything wrong with what they're doing, and they get further and further from him. They no longer draw near to him, Zephaniah says. They have no desire whatsoever to seek him, to know him. But then let's read a little bit further. This is... uh, Chapter 3, verse 8. It's this heavy word from the Lord. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day I will stand up to testify. I have decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms, and to pour out my wrath on them, all my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. But then there's this turn, verse 9. Then I will purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve Him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people will bring me offerings. On that day, you, Jerusalem, will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me, because I will remove from you your arrogant boasters. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill." But I will leave within you the meek and humble. The remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. They will do no wrong. They will tell no lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. Sing, daughter Zion. Shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you. The mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love he will no longer rebuke you. But will rejoice over you with singing. See, I wasn't wasn't kidding, right? Zephaniah is, is not all doom and gloom, it's not all just judgment, this meaningless suffering. Zephaniah tells us destruction is coming. And yet, moments later, he'll remind us that this destruction is more than just punishment. It's more than just God's anger being poured out. It is that, and yet there is purpose behind it. God is refining his people. It's the only way, right? If they cannot be corrected, there's this nuclear sort of option. Things have to get really ugly. They have to get worse before they can get better, we might say. God is going to refine his people, and he he says that he's going to preserve a remnant of, That's familiar language from the Old Testament. There's going to be this this remnant. There'll be a group of people who are left over. After all the destruction, there will be this group of people who are left over. And they will live as his people still. They will choose to live the way that he's, he's called them to live, as his people the sense that we get from Zephaniah is, is God is never finished in destruction. If you read the book of the 12, you'll see that. God is not a destroyer. He's a creator, right? And any time things are torn down, it, it always seems to be that he might rebuild, that he might renew his people, his good world. That's what he's doing. It all has purpose. So while we kind of acknowledge that there's a lot of overlap between what Zephaniah is saying about Judah and what we see happening in our own culture, We also have to acknowledge that just like in their time, God was preserving a remnant. In our time, God is preserving a remnant in the midst of all the brokenness, in the midst of all the problems, the sin. God is preserving a remnant like the church in our day is supposed to be a remnant A group of people who are choosing to live as his people, who are marked uniquely, distinctly as his own, right? But I think that when I say that, we're thinking like, yeah, the church changes the world. It's going to be awesome. But I love the way Zephaniah describes the remnant. The remnant, it doesn't sound spectacular, right? I will leave among you the meek and the humble. Meekness and humility are not exactly cherished gifts, right? These are not the sorts of things we look for in our politicians, even our preachers, frankly. Meekness and humility, he says, will mark them. They trust the Lord. They don't lie or deceive. It's pretty simple stuff, pretty ordinary stuff. Like, this is introductory, Christianity 101, right? Be humble like Jesus, don't lie a bunch, and and trust the Lord. Seems pretty ordinary. And yet, Zephaniah is saying that is the revolution the remnant is leading. That is in itself, in your culture, an incredibly revolutionary thing to do. Be honest in a culture that sees lying as just a, a means to an end. It's just ordinary. It's a great career strategy. Lots of people have gotten where they are in life just by lying. Zephaniah says the remnant, will choose to be honest. They're not deceitful people. They're not trying to cover anything up. Be honest in the culture you find yourself in. He says be humble in a self-centered and narcissistic generation. In a self-glorifying me kind of generation. Be humble. That in itself is a revolution. That's what he's getting at, right? Be real. In a culture where everybody else is projecting a fantasy about themselves that they want so desperately for you to believe, right? Just be real instead. Stop projecting the fantasy. Be real in a culture. That in itself is what it means to be the remnant. It's simple stuff. We're not going to change the world. God is going to change the world through this remnant in this unique kind of way. It is through our weakness, right? We see this in the New Testament. We get it. And, and Zephaniah is, is drawing attention to it. A group of people who just choose to be real and honest, who choose to live uniquely and distinctly in the midst of their culture. Let's live as a remnant, he says. But there's more. I don't know if you notice this. Zephaniah is doing something kind of clever with this, this idea of God's nearness, He brings it up again and again. He uses this word in in Hebrew, uh, talking about the people no longer drawing near to God. So in the first chapter, uh, you remember, you've heard this in all the prophets so far just about. They all say that the day of the Lord is near. It's keruv in Hebrew, right? That word karev means near. Near. And he uses all these different forms of it over and over again. The day of the Lord is Keruv. And then he goes further, right? By the time we get to the third chapter, he's saying the people no longer draw karabah; They're no longer drawing near to God. But then he just keeps on going. He brings it up again. Though the people do not draw near to God, he has drawn Kerabah near to them. It's translated as, as in their midst. He is with them. That's the picture that he's giving. In, in verses 15 and 17, he's talking about this idea that God is going to be with his people, but the word is nearness. It's just translated different ways. Each time he's using the same word. So listen to Zephaniah. He starts by saying, The day of the Lord is near. Right? The day of the Lord is near, he says, because the people no longer draw near to Yahweh. But the beauty The joy he's moving us toward is this. Though the people no longer draw near to Yahweh, Yahweh has decided to draw near to them. Guys, listen to what Zephaniah, he's so clever. That's the gospel and he's just dropping it in there. Though we have run from God, though we refuse to draw near to him, God is choosing to draw near to us. He just drops it in there so subtly. And that's why Zephaniah can say, even in the midst of a conversation about imminent judgment, about something really painful, he's also saying, sing, be glad, rejoice. Something beautiful is coming. Though they continue to move further from God, God is drawing near to them. It's like, the further we get in this series, the more clearly you can hear the gospel and what's being said. I think some of you guys may have been thinking, even I was thinking, like, what are we doing? This is, this is not an easy task. Preaching through 12 prophets in, in, in 12 weeks, it's crazy, right? And honestly, like, what are we really going to get from this, right? Jesus in the beginning feels a bit fuzzy. It's hard to see Jesus in, in what the prophets are talking about. He feels fuzzy at best, and it's like, the further we get into this thing, the more clearly you can see the figure of Jesus. He was fuzzy, but now he's coming into focus, more and more, week after week, you can see it, these subtle ways. I was thinking about Philippians 4, the ways you can hear Zephaniah in Paul's voice. Paul says something really familiar. In Philippians 4, you've heard it over and over again, but listen to it again. In light of hearing Zephaniah, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it, rejoice Keep in mind, Paul's talking to a group of people who are suffering. That's the whole point of the, the letter to the Philippians. It's suffering believers he's writing to. And he's telling them to rejoice always. And then he goes on. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Remember, the, the remnant is, is meek. It's humble. Paul says, let your gentleness be evident to all, for the Lord is near. He's speaking to this suffering group of people and he's saying what Jesus promised, he will fulfill. Jesus said he would come. Jesus said he would establish the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. He said he would finish the work he had begun. Believe it. The Lord is near. And so you can rejoice. You can let your gentleness be evident to all. You don't have to live like everyone else around you. He says something else similar in in Ephesians 2. It's Ephesians 2, 17. He says, Jesus came and he preached peace to you who were far away, the Gentiles, right? And he preached peace to those of you who were near, the the Jews, those who had, had heard and known. And Paul continues, for through him, through Christ, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Paul is saying to these very different groups of people between whom there has been this incredible barrier, Jews and Gentiles. He's saying, both of you have become one people. You have been reconciled together through the work of Jesus. Though you were far away, he has brought you near. God has drawn near to you in his son Jesus, that Christ might ultimately bring you nearer to the Father. You can hear Zephaniah in the way Paul is talking. God has drawn near to us. He dwells in our midst. Though we were far from him, he is pleased to do it. And that's what we're celebrating every time we come to the table. A God who's not distant. A God who refuses to remain so. A God who's pleased to dwell in the midst of his people, near his people. That's the reality of the bread and the cup a God who is mysteriously present with us again and again. As the band comes, we want to remember it, the, the words of Zephaniah and how, the, how they shape what we're doing at the table. As I'm inviting you guys, as, as the band comes in and plays music, as, as we move back into this familiar movement of, of worship, singing together, Zephaniah reminds us, even as we sing, God is singing over us. Even as we celebrate, God is rejoicing over us. God delights in his people. He delights in being near to them. This is the heart of what's being said. So as you come to the table, be reminded. As you sing this morning, be reminded. Though we feel distant from God, though we don't often even have the desire to be near to him, Though sometimes he's the furthest thing from what's going on in our minds. God has been pleased to draw near to us. God has chosen to do this thing in Jesus in spite of us. and He invites us to rejoice in it, to sing and be glad. So I invite you guys into that this morning. You can come down. Uh, there are cups, uh, both kinds, if you'd like, uh, the, the package kinds as well as you'll be able to tear off a a piece of bread or grab a cup. And as the band plays through this song, you'll have time to do that, and I'll come back and, and lead us all through it. Let's pray.